If you haven't opened up your Bible yet or found it on your phone, grab a spot in the book of Isaiah. We'll start in Isaiah chapter one. My aim today is to cover 66 chapters in 35 minutes. So I'm gonna give you a very high level overview today of this book, and my aim is to do two things. One, to give you a summary of the book of Isaiah, just to remind you where we've been, and then also to spend some time considering some of the key principles or things that emerged out of our study together. Several months ago, I read the authorized biography of Eugene Peterson. It's called A Burning in My Bones. It's written by Wynne Collier. If you don't have a book to read this summer, I'd commend this biography to you. It's a a wonderful summary of the life and ministry and thoughtfulness of Eugene Peterson's life. There's one particular story that connects to our study of Isaiah And it relates to Eugene Peterson's work in translating the Bible. Peterson is known for many of his writings, many of his books, but his contemporary translation of the Bible called The Message is probably his most notable work. The message actually started rather accidentally. Peterson was a pastor in Maryland. He was leading a Bible study on the book of Galatians, and he was dismayed that people seemed bored when they were studying a particular chapter. He he wanted to find ways to engage his people more, to sort of feel what the text is saying. It felt as though the Bible study was too far removed from the text, and so Peterson is a New Testament and Old Testament scholar, so he translated or retranslated the original Greek into a sort of on-the-street, earthy-oriented language to try and help people to see how relevant the book of Galatians was. And so he brought one chapter into the Bible study, and it transformed the environment in the room. People were engaged, they saw how relevant Galatians really was to their life, and they said, can you do this again? So he went back translated another chapter, brought it in, same thing happened again and again and again. So eventually he completed the book of Galatians in terms of the translation and it wasn't long until a publisher got a hold of that translation of Galatians and suggested that he might consider doing the entire New Testament. He took on that challenge and that then led to the translation of the Old Testament. I believe that his Old Testament work started with the Psalms because the Psalms were published independently in 1994. But what's interesting in the biography is it tells the story of the fact that the Psalms piqued the interest of the lead singer of U2 named Bono. Apparently before concerts, Bono, The Edge, Adam Clayton and Larry Mullen Jr. would pull out the message and they would read one of the Psalms. And they found it to be deeply meaningful. In fact, Bono was so moved that he actually reached out to the publisher and asked if he could have a meeting with Eugene Peterson. Now at the time, Peterson was working hard on the translation of Isaiah and he was pressed for a deadline. What's more, he had no idea who Bono was. Bono? Who's that? And as a result, he declined the meeting. I'm sorry, I can't meet. I'm working on Isaiah. Somehow, his kids learned about the request from Bono to meet with their dad, and they pressed him. They said, Dad, it's Bono! (laughs) To which Eugene Peterson said, Kids, it's Isaiah! (laughs) Well, eventually, Bono and Peterson did meet 
They developed a unique friendship that lasted several years. But that idea of, it's Isaiah, that resonates with me. I trust with you. I think we might understand what Peterson is saying because I'm sure that throughout the last year you've felt the weightiness, the hope, the grandeur, and the significance of this majestic book. You know, I often marvel how the Holy Spirit orchestrates our journey through the Bible with our journey through life. This has been a book that I've needed. It's timely, it's relevant. And I hope that the intersection of scripture and your life encourages you. I want to remind you that God speaks to you through his word. It's helpful to be reminded of the practicality of the scriptures and motivating for us to consider that there's more to learn and new ways to apply the Bible and new challenges that are in front of us. Can I remind you that the writer of Hebrews says that the Bible is living and active. I've seen that. I've experienced that in this glorious book. Now, just reminder again, next week we start our summer series on the book of Ecclesiastes. The theme is going to be nothing matters, but what if it did? And through this new sermon series over the summer, you're going to learn how to live faithfully in a frustrating world. And just a reminder again, my wife and I will be in our seat over here during first service and I'll be present whenever we're in town or not on vacation, but I'm not on the preaching team for this series. Elders have given me a couple extra weeks for some study and renewal and also some writing. And then also to get ready for our series in the book of Revelation. It's gonna be a timely series, this um, section on Ecclesiastes, but actually it, it probably won't matter. Just kidding, just kidding. So, Isaiah, two aims. What's the book about? And what are some key principles for us to take away? Let's start with the big picture. What is this book about? Three key words, our God saves. Now, we divided it up into three subsections, turn, believe, and live, but essentially, what is the book about? Isaiah is about God. It's about who he is about what he has done and what he promises to do. And I, and I hope that you're better able to answer the question, what is Isaiah about now in June of 2022 than you were able in June of 2021? Because Isaiah is a book that offers hope to God's people as they face external threats and internal threats. The book shows us over and over that our God saves the name Isaiah means that. It means Yahweh, God, is salvation. And from chapter one all the way to chapter 66, Isaiah is addressing immediate crises of trust. There's looming political threats. There's prophecies that he makes about the future. He's speaking into the spiritual inconsistency of God's people, where they place their hopes, what they're trusting and how they treat one another, and where in the world is deliverance gonna come from? Isaiah deals with all of these issues. It's a book of judgment and it's a book of hope. God loves his people enough that he aims to win them back through divine discipline. Sometimes that, discipline, sometimes that discipline comes by prophetic words or warnings. Sometimes it comes by fearful circumstances. In fact, God uses three nations 
as a means of refinement for the people of God. He uses Assyria and Babylon and Persia. And these nations, they, they ebb and flow in terms of their power and their control and their military might, and God uses them as the instruments of testing and discipline and deliverance. Whether it's the eighth century, the sixth century, or prophecies about the future, the question is always the same. Here it is. Will God's people look to their God to save them? That's the question. Will they turn? Will they believe? And then will they live? So in chapters 1 to 39, we saw this idea of turning. So take your Bible, go to the first chapter of Isaiah, Isaiah chapter 1. His first message to God's people from the very beginning of this book is a warning about how far they have strayed from God's ways. Their rebellious activities combined with their religious apathy are serious. You see, the biblical vision for God's people was that their relationship with God would be legitimate and wholehearted, and as a result, it would follow into how they lived and how they treated one another. Israel was supposed to be a light to the nations, an example of what righteous living was going to be because God had rescued them. Isaiah calls God's people to turn from their idolatry, to turn from injustice, while he offers them hope of forgiveness. Look at chapter one, beginning in verse 13. God says, bring no more vain offerings. Incense is an abomination to me. New moon and Sabbath and the calling of convocations, I cannot endure iniquity and solemn assembly. Your new moons and your appointed feast, my soul hates. They have become a burden to me. I am weary of bearing them. God says, in effect, stop coming to worship and acting as if you're not blatantly inconsistent. Stop it. Leave your money at home. Stop raising your hands and praying to me. He says, because they're full of blood. Look what he says. When you spread out your hands, I will hide my eyes from you. Even though you make many prayers, I will not listen. Your hands are full of blood. Wash yourselves, make yourself clean, remove the evil of your deeds before my eyes, cease to do evil, learn to do good, seek justice, correct oppression, bring justice to the fatherless, plead the widow's cause. Come now, let us reason together, says the Lord. Though your sins are like scarlet, they shall be white as snow. Though they are red like crimson, they shall be like wool. If you are willing and obedient, you shall eat the good of the land. But if you refuse and rebel, you shall be eaten by the sword, for the mouth of the Lord has spoken. That's how the book begins. At the same time, there are problems inside the temple, or as it relates to their worship, there's also threats on the outside from earthly invaders, real threats, real kingdoms that are threatening the nation of Israel. And God called upon them to not put their trust in their military, not put their trust in politics, not put their trust in money. Instead, they were to trust in God. You know, don't you, that military might, politics, money in and of themselves, they're not bad. Those things can be really good, they can be a gift, unless they become your functional God. 
Ahaz, a king, was told not to fear Assyria in, in Isaiah chapter 11. And God says to Ahaz, ask a sign, ask me a sign, whatever you want, ask me a sign. And Ahaz over-spiritualizes it and says, I'm not gonna put the Lord to the test. He already decided what he was gonna do. He was gonna use political manipulation in order to get what he wanted. Ahaz was trusting in himself. Or in chapters 28 to 39, the leaders of Judah are taken to task because rather than trust in God, they're gonna trust in their alliance with Egypt. In your Bible, go to Isaiah 37 because here we see an example where Hezekiah, the king at the time, trusts in God and is delivered from the nation of Assyria. Not everything about Hezekiah's life was commendable. Much of it was. This moment is commendable. Chapter 37, look at verse 14. Isaiah 37, 14. Hezekiah received the letter from the hand of the messengers and read it, and Hezekiah went up to the house of the Lord and spread it before the Lord. Hezekiah prayed to the Lord, O Lord of hosts, God of Israel, enthroned above the cherubim, you are the God, you alone of all the kingdoms of the earth. You have made heaven and earth. Incline your ear, O Lord, and hear. Open your eyes, O Lord, and see, and hear all the words of Sennacherib, which he has sent to mock the living God. Truly, O Lord, the kings of Assyria have laid waste all the nations and their lands and have cast their gods into the fire. For they were no gods, but the work of men's hands, wood and stone. Therefore, they were destroyed. So now, O Lord, our God, save us from his hand that all the kingdoms of the earth may know that you alone are the Lord. Wow. One of the reasons we have stories in the Bible like this is so that when you feel threatened, that you'll lay out your problems before the Lord and to be reminded that your God saves. Sadly, while God delivered Hezekiah and the city of Jerusalem from that threat, it wasn't long until Hezekiah began to curry favor with Babylon and it was a fateful decision that would eventually lead to the Babylonian captivity. And yet over and over in Isaiah, we see that God calls on his people to turn from him to turn to him, rather, from their misplaced trust in their idols, to turn from their spiritual hypocrisy. And what we see is this pattern of God's people continually struggling with placing their trust in anything but God. And it's reflected in how they deal with the crisis at hand, that the crisis served to reveal the idols of their hearts. And Isaiah calls on them and us to see this pattern and turn away from it, to not remain distant from the text and sort of have this judgmental view. How could they be so full of idolatry and don't consider if we trust in politics or if we trust in money or if we trust in military strength? Turn. Secondly, to believe. Take your Bible, go to Isaiah Chapter 40, the, this, the second section is written to those who are in exile because of the Babylonian captivity. So reminder that despite the warning, God's people didn't listen, and in 586, Jerusalem was destroyed. The people were deported and judgment had come. However, in the middle of this, Isaiah is calling God's people to remember that they're living for another kingdom, that they're, they're living here on earth, but that they ought to be not just exiles of the people of Israel, 
um, in the country of Babylon, but to realize that while they're there, that they're to live for a different kind of kingdom, a kingdom that's even beyond the kingdom of Israel. Isaiah 40 In verse 1, we hear comforting words. Comfort, comfort, my people, says your God. Speak tenderly to Jerusalem. Cry to her that her warfare is ended, that her iniquity is pardoned, that she has received from the Lord's hand double for all her sins. A voice cries, in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord. Make straight in the desert a highway for our God. Every valley shall be lifted up. Every mountain and hill be made low. The uneven ground shall become level and the rough places a plain. And the glory of the Lord shall be revealed and all flesh shall see it together. For the mouth of the Lord has spoken. Here's the offering of another way to live. He calls them to believe. And yet... Again, the sad story of the people of God, similar to our sad story, is despite all the promises, all the grace, all the hope, the people of Israel still do not believe. They need to be rescued from themselves. They they need a deliverer, a, a new Israel, if you will, a servant who will both emulate the very heart of God and bring deliverance to God's people. And of course, if you know the New Testament, that person is Jesus Christ from Nazareth. Look at chapter 53, beginning in verse three. What's interesting about this servant is he's not the kind of servant that the people of Israel would have thought that they needed. They wanted somebody to come and be a military leader and politically savvy and be able to get Babylon off of their backs. And yet here comes this servant who's actually going to suffer. Isaiah 53, three, he was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief, as one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised. And we esteemed him not. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace, and with his wounds we are healed. Looking back from the New Testament onto this text, we see, ah, this is Jesus The echoes of atonement are here in Isaiah, and yet it's fulfilled fully in the person of work of Christ, person and work of Christ when he dies on the cross. And so you may be here, and you've been walking through this series of Isaiah with us, and you're not yet a Christian. And I'm so glad if you've chosen to stick with this study. Maybe you're curious as to what the Bible says. Can I just encourage you that What Isaiah is really pointing to is a savior who can redeem people from the greatest threat of their life, which is not external, but internal. It's Jesus who, the text says, is pierced for our transgressions, meaning he's the one that absorbs the wrath of God so that forgiveness could be applied. He's the deliverer that we need. This servant king delivers people not by might, no, instead by suffering and rejection and death. And so we find that Isaiah, the most quoted Old Testament book in the New Testament, helps us to know what, or maybe better, who we should believe in when life is hard and dark. So our God saves through a suffering deliverer. So turn, believe, third, live. Chapters 56 through 66 look into the future with a series of poems that 
reaffirm all the promises in the book of Isaiah, which are meant to be lived out in a new kingdom, meaning God's justice will be executed. The servant king will rule, and his righteous servants who are a part of that kingdom will bask in the glory of a remade world. The vision of holy, holy, holy that Isaiah saw in Isaiah chapter 6 will become the experience of all those who live in this heavenly realm. In fact, that's what's predicted and hinted at in Isaiah 61. Take your Bible, go to Isaiah 61 and verse 1. And by way of reminder, this is the text that Jesus opened in a synagogue at the beginning of his ministry. This was the passage that he read and said, today this scripture is fulfilled in your hearing, and as a result, they wanted to kill him. Isaiah 61 and verse one, the spirit of the Lord God is upon me, because the Lord has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives, and the opening of the prison to those who are bound, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor and the day of vengeance of our God to comfort all who mourn, to grant to those who mourn in Zion, to give them a beautiful headdress instead of ashes, the oil of gladness instead of mourning, the garment of praise instead of a faint spirit, that they may be called oaks of righteousness, the planting of the Lord that he may be glorified. Wow. This book is incredible. It shows us from so many different angles the glory of God. It, 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 it elevates our understanding of who God is, and it invites us, even calls us, commands us. In light of who God is, friends, be humble, not haughty. Be receptive, not resistant. Be obedient, not obstinate. It calls us to be the kind of people who, understanding who God is, who pursue worship and pursue it deeply. And at the same time, it calls us to live righteously. Those things go together. Worship deeply, live righteously. And it pleads for an individual pursuit of righteousness while calling upon us to apply that relationship, or rather that that righteousness, as we live in another world, with another worldly mindset in this world, pursuing righteousness in our relationships. And this kingdom is guaranteed by promise. Look at Isaiah 66 and verse 22. Here's how the book ends. Notice the focus of worship. Chapter one was about worship, chapter 66 is about worship, chapter one was about broken worship, chapter 66 is about restored worship. For as the new heavens, this is Isaiah 66, 22, for as the new heavens and the new earth that I make shall remain before me, says the Lord, so shall your offspring and your name remain. Here comes the worship part. From, the new, from new moon to new moon, from Sabbath to Sabbath, all flesh shall come to worship before me, declares the Lord. So that's what it means to live, to turn, to believe, and to live. Here is this eighth century prophet who is still speaking. This book quoted more than any other Old Testament book in the New Testament. In fact, if the Old Testament were the Himalayan range of mountains, Isaiah would be Mount Everest. He calls us to 
turn, to believe, to live. He begins by rebuking God's people for their false worship. It ends with what true worship looks like in the presence of God's glory. Isaiah tells us, God saves. But from what? What does God save us from? God saves us from being on the wrong side of God's glory. Isaiah is, in the Old Testament, a signature book recording the way that God has a plan to save sinners. Our God saves. That's what this book is about. So when we think of some key principles, some things to maybe lay down as markers in this book, some of the things practically that we need to remember. What, what, what might we consider? Let me give you six of them this morning. One of the things that I did in preparation for this sermon is I, I sent an email to our staff and I just said, hey, give me some feedback on some of the most memorable points in the last year. Uh, that's kind of a dangerous thing to do, right? In case they send back and can't think of a thing. But no, what they did is they had, they had lots of, 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 of memorable moments that coming out of our study of Isaiah that were deeply helpful and encouraging. And so I've distilled them down into six takeaways or six principles. There's many to consider, but let's just think of these six. Number one, big problems require a big God. Isaiah is a book about huge problems, scary problems, impossible problems. Anybody come to work or work? Anyone come to worship today with big problems? Anyone come to worship today with some scary things going on in your life? Isaiah is a book that speaks into that reality. There are external threats, there's internal threats. And yet through it all, Isaiah keeps bringing us back to this central thought that God is holy. He's the creator. The nations are a drop in the bucket. Heaven is where he sits. Earth is where he props up his feet. He can be trusted. Remember, church, who God is when life is hard. Don't let your problems, your burdens, your temptations, your fears, your anxieties begin to occupy the space that should only be occupied by a really big God because big problems need a big God. And guess what? We have a big God. Number two, beware of idolatry and spiritual inconsistency. There are many warnings in this book. On the one hand, Isaiah warns us about idolatry, when good things become God things. Throughout the history of God's people, we have this track record, this proven failure pattern. That there are things that we turn to for comfort, things that we turn to for security, things that we turn to for identity, things that we turn to for power, it's when a thing becomes the thing. And usually you know something is an idol when it's taken away and you're about ready to freak out. When your emotional 
Um, agitation is really, really high, unusually high, or your fear or anxiety is kind of off the chart. When you're feeling emotions at a particular high level because you've lost something, that may be an indicator that that thing in your life was too important. God offers us help if we'll turn from our idols. And one of the passages in Isaiah that was stunning in this regard was Isaiah's comment that you make these idols and then you carry them, which is sort of a silly picture. You're gonna, you're gonna make something that you're gonna worship, but you're carrying it. And the question that we posed on that Sunday is this, you can either carry your own idols or you can have God carry you. What do you want? So idolatry is one concern, so is spiritual inconsistency. A frequent problem that plagues religious people is a terrible separation from what they do in worship and how they live in real life. God's people, religious people, us, we're often guilty of saying one thing in worship and living another way in the world. Spiritual people have a long track record of finding very spiritual sounding reasons why we can't care for hurting or marginalized people. And God was outraged by their hypocrisy. And so should we be, especially when that shoe fits. Beware of idolatry and spiritual inconsistency. Number three, fear and anxiety are familiar, but they're not fatal. That should be encouraging if you regularly find yourself struggling with fear or anxiety. You may think you're a subpar Christian. You may think real Christians don't ever feel feelings of fear. Oh, no, they do. In fact, much of Isaiah is written because of really scary situations. In fact, it might be a little scary if you weren't a little scared. The question is, what do you do with those feelings? Isaiah is filled with assurances about who the Lord is. And one of the things that I've appreciated about this book is to realize that fear and anxiety are part of the experience of God's people. The question is, what do we do with those experiences? Do we use them as opportunities to push us towards trusting the Lord? When I'm afraid, when I'm nervous, do I use this as an opportunity to remind my soul? No, let's be reminded who the Lord is. Or do my fears and anxieties begin to eclipse my understanding of who God is. Isaiah has helped me to stop being afraid of my fear and not worrying about my worries because I can trust the Lord. Because why? My God saves, that's why. Fear and anxiety are familiar, they're not fatal. Number four, waiting on God is how you live by promise and not performance. Waiting on God is how you live by promise, not performance. The trust battle that we see in Isaiah relates to whether or not we're going to put our confidence in our ability to figure things out or whether we're gonna put our confidence in God's ability to work it out. Waiting, after all, waiting on God means that I focus on what I know to be true about God when I don't know what's true about my life. I know that you don't know what to do. And instead of throwing up your hands and saying, I don't know what to do, it said, yeah, that's true, you don't know what to do. That's not a problem. But what do you know is true about God? The move to wait upon God is to be reminded who he is when we don't even know who we are in light of how much we have to wait. 
We saw five promises in Isaiah 41. Can I remind you of them this morning? God says, he promises this to you, Christian. He is with you. He's your God. He will strengthen you. He will help you. He will uphold you. God promises. This is what it sounds like as if it's coming from God. He says to you, put your name in. I'll put mine in. Mark, God says to me, I am with you. You're not alone. Mark, I am your God. Mark, I will strengthen you. Mark, I will help you. Mark, I will uphold you with my righteous right hand. I need those promises. Those are promises to live by. And the Christian life is lived by those promises, not my ability to figure things out. Number five, you can't buy manna in bulk. I wish I thought of that. Got to give credit where credit's due. It's Betsy Childs Howard from her book on waiting. It's so good, though. What does it mean? It means that God gives you daily bread. He doesn't allow you to buy manna in bulk because he knew if you could buy it in bulk, you'd trust in yourself. God limits the supply of grace based upon what we need every single day because he knows if we could figure everything out, if we had all the power that we'd ever need, we would never trust in him. We would self-destruct in our delusional pursuit of trying to be God. As a result, God puts a rain on how much he supplies. And so when you run into situations where you're like, I need I need to know what to do here, Lord. You're right in the space that Christians are supposed to be in. In fact, the thing that should make you really nervous is when you actually think you know what to do and haven't thought. I need to wait on the Lord. Whether it was Ahaz or Hezekiah, whether it's the people of God or whether it's us, the message is, You can trust God right now, where you are. So you brought some burden into this service. You're listening right now. You've got a huge burden in your life. Here's what I know. God has grace available for what you face today. You don't have tomorrow's grace yet. So stop living in tomorrow and the future and future because you don't have grace for that. If you want to try living there, good luck because you don't have divine empowerment to deal with those issues. Instead, We have to live on the manna that God provides because you can't buy manna in bulk. Finally, number six, God is going to help you. He has to. I'm ending this sermon series, the entire sermon series, with the wisdom of my dear wife. I remember where I was seated, in our sunroom, sitting on the chair, expressing to her in a dark moment last year how fear and anxiety were having a heyday with me. Didn't know what to do. Scared out of my mind. And she made the teaching of Isaiah deeply personal and practical. God promises to help you. He promises. He's going to help you. He has to. Why does he have to? Because he's promised that he would. And when God promises, you can take that check to the bank all day long. He's going to help you. He has to. Because he promised that he would. 
So the next time you run up against something that's fearful, either on the outside or the inside, the next time you run up something that's kind of anxiety-inducing, just pause. Those fears are real. The anxious things running through your soul, I get it. But before you go too far, can you just be reminded, my God saves. He's promised he's gonna help me. He has to help me because he said he would. You see, at the end of the day, it's not just that our God saves. That's true. But it's also that our God saves. And it's also true that our God saves. Your God, Christian, saves. So the next time fear or uncertainty or anxiety come knocking at your door, I hope you'll open up your Bible to right in the middle and take those fears and anxieties and uncertainties and let Isaiah speak to them. The next time that you're plagued with really strong emotional thoughts like, it's scary, I hope that you'll say to your feelings, it's Isaiah. <laughs> or the next time you think, it's frustrating, your response will be, it's Isaiah. Or, it's impossible. It's Isaiah. He's proven over and over and over that he's trustworthy. Our God saves. Isaiah says, behold, your God. You can live on this and prosper. That's what this glorious book is all about. Thank you, Lord Jesus, for Isaiah. The way that it's spoken to our lives in just the right moments. We've traveled a lot of life in the last year. And this book, Sunday after Sunday, has been a helpful reminder, encourager, rebuker. Lord, we're just so grateful that your word speaks into our lives. And we pray you'd continue to do that. Don't let today be the last time that we read Isaiah. Make it, Lord, the beginning of a lifelong journey of this glorious book. How grateful we are. How amazed we are that you, from the 8th century till now, speak to the inspired text of the scripture. We're grateful, Lord Jesus. We pray this in your name. Amen.